Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who is alive and active, that you are on the throne this very moment. Pray, Father God, that you would help us to hear your voice, that you would be in this room, that we would tangibly feel your presence. We pray, Lord God, that you would shape us and transform us, give us life. Um, Give us your word for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in 1904... William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. And familiar with the name, he was connected to the Borden Dairy family, which means he graduated from high school in 1904, already a millionaire. And his parents blessed him with a remarkable opportunity. They said, now that you've graduated from high school, we want to send you around the world on a trip for you to experience all that there is in this world and to see things you've never seen before. And so Young William Borden went to Europe and to Asia and Africa and the Middle East at that young age. And an interesting thing happened that I don't know that his family or he himself would have imagined happening. He wrote back to his family while on his journey. He said, quote, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. Seeing the hurt and the brokenness in the world around him, he could not get away from the fact that he had a burden and a calling from God to do something about it. And so he opened up his Bible and he wrote two words in his Bible that day, no reserves. No reserves. Later went on, very shortly thereafter, to go to Yale College. And as he started at Yale College, he found that there was really not much of a Christian presence at Yale. And he determined to do something about that. So young William Borden started just a small prayer group for students there at Yale. By the end of his freshman year, this small group that he had started had grown to 150 students meeting on a weekly basis to pray for God, to God, for God to move in the campus. By the time of his graduation, 1,000 of the 1,300 students at Yale College met in this weekly prayer group, praying for revival, thanking God for what he was doing, seeking his face for their lives. That place, at that moment, he went down and he, he wrote in his Bible again, underneath no reserves, he wrote, no retreats. William Borden was offered several remarkably high-paying jobs coming right out of Yale through his family connections, and he turned them all down, choosing instead to go to seminary to prepare to work with the Kansu people in China, which whom God had given him a sin of special burden. He goes to seminary. After graduating, he immediately goes to Egypt so he can learn Arabic to work with these um, Muslims in China. And at the age of 25, young William Borden, while in Egypt, contracts spinal meningitis and dies. And has a a, a grave there in Egypt that many would have have no idea who he really is. And it's worth pausing and wondering, is that a tragedy? Here we are, young man, 25, 25 at the time of his death. A young man who has, in fact, much according to the letter he wrote to his family, spent his entire life preparing to go to the mission field. So a weird state of irony there that he never actually made it to the destination that he was preparing for. He, he, he went through and he learned the Greek and he learned the Hebrew and he learned the theology and he learned how to speak and he learned all these things that he needed to learn. He learned all about the people he was going to go minister to, but he never actually got to those people. Interestingly enough, prior to his death, Borden wrote down two more words in his Bible underneath 
no reserves underneath, no retreats. Days prior to his death, William Borden wrote, no regrets. No regrets. We may call it a tragedy, but he would not have. And as I read his story, I am moved thinking, what do I need to do to approach the end of my life, whether that's next month or in eight decades from now? What do I need to do to approach the end of my life with that kind of a perspective? Don't we hunger for that? To to, to be able to look back on our lives and broadly speaking, yes, we can say, well, maybe I regret this moment and I regret that moment and I regret that moment and I stumbled into sin. But to look back broadly and say, I don't regret the course that my life has taken. I gave it everything I had. I stumbled, but I didn't turn back. And I have no regret over the way God has led me. We are going to look this morning at the call of the prophet Jeremiah. And I think as we see that the call, God's call on this young prophet, we see what needs to happen. What needs to happen from God to a person to enable them to live that kind of 3R life as I think of it. Life of no, reg- of no retreat, of no res- reserve, of no regret. So if you want to open up to the book of Jeremiah, page 746 in your pew Bible. We're in Jeremiah chapter 1. But we have background, you know, as you look up. Jeremiah lived at a rather tumultuous time in the history of Israel in the 6th and the 7th century B.C. The time Jeremiah is living and writing is not a good time in the history of Israel. They're at a very low moment, getting lower and lower and lower. We see the, the country just continuing to decline spiritually. They are ignoring the voice of God. They are promoting injustice rather than justice. They are hurting and oppressing the cause of the orphan and the widow rather than caring for them. They are worshiping false gods. And and this spiritual decline very quickly leads to economic, political, and regional decline as God continues to call them to repentance through men like Jeremiah. Chapter 1, verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Two things we're going to see here this morning. Two things that God does in the life of Jeremiah that frees him to live a life of worshipful abandon. Two things we're going to sit on. One, God has called and formed Jeremiah before he was ever born. You know, many advocates of abortion within our country advocate, they, they, they ground their position in the conviction that a person is, is not a person until they're born. 
personhood, you see, comes after birth, after certain other qualities are fulfilled. Their view is that the fetus has the potential for life and personhood, but it does not have life and personhood. Soon her book, Biomedical Ethics, Mary Ann Warren, states that to be considered a person, someone must have at least two of the following five characteristics. Characteristic one, they have to have consciousness of objects and events external and internal to their being. Two, they need to have reasoning, the developed capacity to solve new and relatively complex problems. Three, they need to have self-motivated activity. Four, they need to have the capacity to communicate by whatever means messages of an indefinite variety of types. That is, not just with an indefinite number of possible contents, but on indefinitely many possible topics. Five, the presence of self-concepts, self-awareness, and either individual or racial awareness or both. I don't know about you, but after, watching, after eating Thanksgiving dinner and watching the football game, I don't think I have any of those. Any. Um, and that's on a good day. Concluding that children in the womb have none of these qualities, she goes on to say that um, a fetus is not a true person and that abortion is not, in fact, infanti infanticide because we're not dealing with life or personhood. Such a strikingly different picture than we see here in the call of Jeremiah. At the time of Jeremiah's call, God comes to him and says, I am not calling you on the basis of past performance. I'm not calling you because the, the, the three members of the Godhead, we just got together and looked down at you and said, hey, Jeremiah's got it. Let's open up a door for him. Yet we see this, this pre-birth work of God. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. I, I knew about you. I was in a relationship with you. I set my focus on you. I knew you while you were still in the womb. There was this intimate relationship between us before you ever took a breath. Before, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet above the nations. God's saying, you know, I came down and I, and I shaped you like a potter shapes the clay. I shaped your organs. I chose your hair color. I came down, I chose your eye color. I said, here she, you're going you're gonna to look like this, you're going to look like that. You're going you're gonna to be this tall. You're going to grow to have these skills and abilities. This is going to be the thing that's going to drive you batty. This is going to be the thing that you're going to love. This is going to be mom's home-cooked meal that you love the best. I formed you. I, we see this intimacy of God shaping him in the womb. He was formed by the Lord while he was in the womb. He was called and consecrated by the Lord while he was in the womb. You know, the, the kings of Israel were consecrated to be kings. They were set apart for service. They had oil poured over their heads as this, this remarkable ceremony to, to prepare them for their service. And here God's saying, before you even could see light, I said, I've shaped you and I've set a path before you for you to go and for you to fulfill. You know, I think readers of Genesis 1 and 2 were, were rightly struck when we read the creation account. And we, we read that God formed Adam from the dust of the earth. Again, the same idea of God forming. And we're reminded here that Adam is not the only one that had that special creation in the hands of a God who was so remarkably near, who was so remarkably involved, who took such remarkable consideration and intimacy in how he did it. The Lord is involved in every one of our lives before we have even uttered a breath.
He's formed every person that has ever lived. And He's been involved pouring out His wisdom, His power, His love upon them as He fashions them together. And we see a similar concept in the New Testament as we see God link this pre-birth formation and choosing with a path of service set before us. Listen to Paul right in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in Him. Before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 ever happened, God knew the believer's name. God chose the believer to be his son or his daughter and called the believer to follow after him with everything they have. You were on the mind of God before the sun was shining in the sky, before the moon was regulating the course of the oceans, and before the stars lit it up on a beautiful mountaintop sky. You were on the mind of God. And notice how Paul, shortly after in Ephesians, links this pre-birth formation and calling with a call to serve. He says later on in Ephesians, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Like Jeremiah... Every follower of Jesus Christ has the wondrous freedom of knowing that however haphazard our lives may seem, that we have been known by the living God before there was a twinkle in our Father's eye and that a path has been laid before us, a path of worshipful abandonment. And when we embrace that, we can begin living a life that we go after with everything that we have without retreating and with no sense of regret because we know it's God's life for us to live, not our own. You know, this pre-birth call is remarkably freeing and confining when we think about it. You know, people walk around with this sense of burden, sometimes terrible burden, depending on the person or the moment in life, wondering, why am I here? Why am I here? is there anything that I can really do that's going to have any significance between now and the grave? Is there, in fact, any way or any purpose for me to live? And some of us, you know, we're just so busy, you know, trying to go to work, make dinner, do the shopping, pay the bills, take care of things, that we don't get those feelings quite often. But once in a while, in a moment, we sit back and we say, is this really all there is? Is this really worthwhile? Am I just turning my wheels? Is this what I really want? Philosophers write books about it. Men have midlife crises based on it. Let's be honest. The guy hits a certain age. He says, man, I don't like this. He goes out, he buys a red Corvette, gets his ear pierced, changes his wardrobe, switches his job. Why? Because he's reached a place where he says, I have regrets. If I were going to die tomorrow... I would not look back on where I've been and say, oh, I have no regrets. I'd say, man, I missed out on so much. There's so much more I never took advantage of. 
And, and so, so people are, were, were burdened with this question. When I was a young, a young boy, I think I was around eight, my father at one moment, he was waxing philosophical for a change. didn't happen often. And said to me, he said, you know what the purpose of life is, Christopher? The purpose of life is living. And as an eight-year-old, I thought that was the most woefully inadequate answer I had ever heard in my life. If, if the purpose of life is just to breathe and to do things, how on earth can I not but have regret? Why even bother trying? Why give anything my all? Why fight when things are hard? The purpose is just to live. There's no sense of meaning or value or destiny. It's pathetic. It's sad. And yet in Acts 17, we are told that God has chosen our days. God has chosen the place we are to live. God has chosen the time we are to live in. God has the days of our lives numbered. Even as Jesus Christ, the Scripture tells us, came in the fullness of time at God's appointed hour, we come at God's appointed hour for us. And that is remarkably freeing. Because all of a sudden we realize that nothing in our lives is an accident, that there is in fact a way before us to live, that we will have the resources to live in a way that can bring honor and pleasure to the living God, and that our lives are destined to have value and purpose if we will seize on God's will and the works, good works He's prepared in advance for us. Remarkably freeing. Yet terribly constraining. First thing I think that probably hit Jeremiah as God said this to him was said, hey, you're going to be a prophet and you're going to go say this and you're going to go do this. You ever think Jeremiah might have said, but what about the plans I had for my life? What about what I wanted to do? I, I had some dreams and I had some ambitions and, and I, I, I had a path I saw before me. I, I had maybe a place I wanted to go. I had a company I wanted to work at. I had, a, I had a woman or a man I wanted to marry. I had an idea of how I wanted to spend my time. You tell me I can't do that now? Jeremiah quickly learns to cast aside the plans he has for himself, recognizing that God has plans for him first. And, and we too, under the new covenant, are so remarkably constrained because God tells us, quote, we are not our own, we have been bought at a price. The, the minute we claim the name Christian, we are washed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We have been bought. We have been claimed. We have been chosen. Our lives are not our own. However much we want to deceive ourselves into thinking that they are, we are stewards over our lives rather than owners. We don't possess our lives. We safeguard them for the Lord's sake. And yet when we embrace this truth, instead of, we are freed from a life where we can never know if we're really going to have purpose, value, or worth or not. And we are freed to have a life of worshipful abandon for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Second thing that we see God do is He reminds Jeremiah and us, where true qualifications and power come from. Notice in the text, Jeremiah says, Ah, Sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I am only a youth. 
He hears what God wants for him, and, and perhaps like some of us, he says, that's great, but um, I think I'm going to exit stage left. That's great, God. Uh, can, can I back out of this? I don't know that I want this. I don't know that I'm ready for this. You know, we don't know exactly. I mean, the text doesn't spell it out completely clear how old Jeremiah is, but we, we can infer he, he was quite young. His ministry started in 627 B.C. with uh, the, the one king. His, his ministry went on after 586. 586 is when Jerusalem fell and they were, they were taken into captivity, many of them. His ministry continued on some indeterminate period of time after that. So we know that bare minimum, Jeremiah served as a prophet for 41 plus years. can logically infer that he, he probably was a teenager when he received this call. And and let's see the fullness of what this call was. God was not calling him to some small, kind of off-in-the-corner task of little importance. He says in verse 10, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. At the moment of great crisis in the nation of Israel, theological crisis, economic crisis, political crisis, God calls, let's say, a 13-year-old to be his representative to confront kings, priests, and the populace in rebellion against God. Wow. And I think it's at that moment that we have to admit that God is so different than we are. God is so wonderfully different than we are. If, if, if we looked at that job description that I just read of kingdoms and overthrowing and lifting up and casting down and confronting a rebellious people, and we said, let's form a search committee that's going to create a job description and then look to hire this person, what kind of person would we really be looking for? Well, we, I, think, I think we would say, well, this would be a really great opportunity to have someone of significant age and experience because people generally respect that kind of thing, particularly people of certain cultures. So let's, let's get someone with a speckled gray on their hair or more who's been doing this for three or four decades. That would be valuable. Or, or we might say, you know what? This is going to be a job that's going to require a lot of interaction with different cultures. So let's get someone that went to Oxford. They had, you know, a kind of they went overseas to get their degree, and they got a degree in international relations, and they know a lot about different cultures and different belief systems, and they'll be best equipped to talk to these foreign nations and to challenge them. And you know, this person also they've got to do a lot of speaking. This is a communications job. So let's get someone with a lot of rhetorical gifts. Let's get someone who has preached to small groups, to large groups. Let's get someone who can fill a stadium. That's what we need for this job. That's probably what we would do. And yet that's not what the living God does. These are none of the things God looks for. We tend to think that experience, often age, and other identifiable markers are necessary for successful service in the kingdom of God. And yet here, I think, as we look at this text, we see that's not not the case. That's why Jeremiah doesn't want to accept the call, because probably his culture feels a little bit the same way. We need age, experience, and gifting to do this for God. That's why Jeremiah is saying, I can't do it. God, it's too much. It's beyond me. And, and let's be clear, we know what, also what he's being called to do. He's being called to be a prophet. Some of us, we hear the word prophet, right? And you think, um, you think about what you see there as you go through like the, the checkout line, and they've got the, Edgar Casey has said this. 
Nostradamus has said this. Those are these fire and brimstone pictures coming down in the check It's awful. Um, you know, an Old Testament prophet, there were two, two primary components of their ministry, foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling was the prophet would look into the future and they would predict future events. And so we have Isaiah in... I think about 600 B.C., predicting in Isaiah 7 that Christ would be born of a virgin. Looking into the future, this is what's going to happen. But, but then there's the ministry of forth-telling, where it's really the prophet confronting people of their sin, calling them to repentance. It's kind of a lot like preaching today. You know, where a pastor can get up and just preach to people about his, or her, his need and everyone's need to come and to surrender their lives to Christ in a deeper way. And yet there's a critical difference. Most of, in this, uh, most of us in this room chose to come here this morning. You chose to put yourself in the place to hear some muckety-muck speak. And so th- there are probably a few of us in a room this big who we didn't come here really to hear the Word of God. We came here out of love and deference for someone we care about. Let me say God has a plan for that too. Yet, in the Old Testament prophet's case, it was almost universally, I want you to go and talk to these people that aren't going to want to hear from you. And you're going to go talk to these people that the, the more you speak about their sin, the angrier they're going to get at you. And so God calls this teenager, Jeremiah, to go carry on the prophetic ministry. And you, as you read through the book of Jeremiah, if you have, you can kind of imagine what happens. Jeremiah gets beat up. Jeremiah gets thrown in a well. Jeremiah gets put in stocks. Jeremiah gets made fun of. Jeremiah gets called a traitor to his country. Jeremiah's Sandals are not sandals I would want to walk in, in that way. And yet that's the path God set out before him. The ministry of the prophet is, here we see, listening to God and doing what God says. And yet Jeremiah doesn't feel ready in the same way that Moses doesn't feel ready, in the same way that Timothy in the New Testament doesn't feel ready, Jeremiah does not feel up to the task. And we tend to think that before we can do something, We need to be perfectly trained for it, experienced for it, and ready for it. And listen to what God says to Jeremiah. He says, Do not say that I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. And do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, declares the Lord. One pastor put it really well when he said, God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. God doesn't look down at people and say, you are ready for this, therefore you're going to go do this. God says, are you willing to be humbly obedient? I will make you ready. Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone? I will prepare you. Are you willing to go when I tell you to go? I'll give you what you need when you need it. He doesn't wait for us to have arrived. Hallelujah. Calling and obedience trumps experience. Jonathan Edwards was under 30. I believe he was 27, but he was was under 30 when he was called to pastor the second largest congregation in New England several hundred years ago. And people didn't like it, particularly particularly some of the the clergy in Boston that did not like Edwards to begin with. Who is this young upstart taking over the second largest congregation in all of New England? Who is this guy? Later on, he was called to give an influential address uh, in Boston that was always given to a faculty member at Harvard Divinity School. And there was fuming that such a young man would be given such a remarkably great opportunity. 
Timothy, called to be a pastor in the major cosmopolitan city of Ephesus, at such a young age that Paul repeatedly in First and Second Timothy has to encourage him again and again, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Keep going. Use the gifts God's given you. Pastor Jeremy was called to be the senior pastor of this church at 27. And I don't know of anyone who would look back. This is the work of God. The only way we can have a no-retreat kind of life is when we embrace the truth that our obedience to the commands of God, our willingness to to do what He says and to say what He tells us to say, trumps our age and experience every time. I have heard so many people over the years tell me that they have not served in ministry in a ministry in the church or in their, in their office because they don't feel, quote, ready. I can't, I can't work in the nursery. I can't serve in the nursery. I don't have kids yet. One day when I have kids, I'll understand kids, and then I can serve. You know, I can't hold a crying baby. I don't like people to cry. Can't do it. You know, Chris, I can't, I can't lead that Bible study. I don't know about the Bible well enough. People might ask me questions I don't know how to answer. Can't do it. Can talk to others about the Lord. Hey, I can't be a, a youth volunteer because I really don't like teens and they don't like me. It's not going to work out. I, I've had people, I think I've had people try to convince me that they couldn't serve coffee because they weren't ready. I mean, I mean, we say we're not ready and so then we just we let others go for it. And we look to some event in the future when all of a sudden maybe like a light will shine down, there'll be a, oh, and then we'll be ready. And that is not how it works in God's kingdom. One of the best youth volunteers I ever had was in this camp. He was in his mid-twenties at the time. He had never served in the church. He didn't want to serve in the church. He didn't ask to serve in the church. But I hounded him like a dog. (laughs) He, He explained to me that he wasn't in a teenage music. He did not have a Facebook or a MySpace. He quite candidly said, he said, Chris, I don't like teenagers. He was like, I'm not one of those guys that says, oh, if I could only go back to high school, life would be so great. He was like, I hated high school. I'd never go back. Okay. Um, And yet I asked him to be a youth volunteer. What does that say about me? Um, And yet, week after week, he came. And teenagers saw Jesus Christ in him. They saw him being obedient to Jesus Christ as a father as he would talk about his children. They saw him being obedient to Jesus Christ as they heard him talk about his wife and they saw him interact with his wife at the coffee hour. They saw him show up faithfully week after week and try to get to know them. They were inspired by the fact that he would not wait three or four years to ask them a real question. He, he was there for three months. He was walking up to guys as we had like our, in, our just guy time and he'd say, so which of you is doing something on the internet you shouldn't be doing? And they loved him for it because he asked enough to push the hard buttons. He's one of the best volunteers I've ever had. And yet, he still, after doing it for a year, didn't feel ready. And yet his ministry had such glorious fruit. Every, God has given every believer spiritual gifts for successful ministry. But more than that, it is our willingness to humble ourselves before him and just do what he wants us to do, to say what he wants us to say, to live lives of obedience that really matters. And that's important, especially here now in the life of this church, because I have been blessed to see this church grow and grow and grow. And yet, if this church is going to continue to glorify God and grow in and out, 
We need a lot more people to serve. There's going to need to be people that to serve in the nursery and in the childcare and in the leading small groups and serving as deacons and elders. And I am of the conviction that the reason a lot of peop, more people are not serving is because we don't feel ready. We don't feel like we have it. We don't feel gifted enough. We think someone else must be better. Let's just let them do it. And maybe one day in the future we can. And that is not as important as a willingness to just humble ourselves before the Lord and be obedient. As Jeremiah's ministry goes forward, we see it has its ups and downs. It has mountaintops. It has valleys. There are moments where Jeremiah definitely has some mini regrets. There are some moments after he gets beaten up and tossed around that he says, God, why are you doing this to me? And yet it's remarkably interesting that the last moment of like that that we see is in chapter 21. And we journey all the way to chapter 52, which goes over a significant amount of time. And there is not the slightest hint of any regret, of any, of any failure to give God his best, of any retreat. And the focus of those last 31 chapters becomes on the living God. On God having the power and the authority to do what he said he's going to do, causing some people to rise and some people to fall. On God fulfilling every promise he ever made to Jeremiah. And on every, God fulfilling every promise he made for every country. The focus becomes on God exerting his will and Jeremiah falling into a groove of going down the path God has set before him. And, and, and as we look and we say, what would I need to do to have this kind of life where I could go forward with everything I had without holding back? Where I could, I could not retreat even when it got hard. And where I could end my days whenever they are saying, thank you, God. I wouldn't trade a thing. The only way we can have that is by embracing who God is what God has done before any of our days came to be, what He has set before us before we ever have a mind to think about it ourselves, and obediently following that day after day, whatever course He takes us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise You that, that You love us so much. We praise You that You don't need us, but in Your grace You use us. And God, that is just so unthinkable to me. Lord, we thank you for, for your grace in that. We pray, God, that you would open our minds, that you would expand our horizons, that we would come to see that and live out the truth of the promise that you can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. God, I think between the, 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 the group of us in this room, we can imagine an awful lot. We can ask an awful lot. Capture us with wonder. Give us courage to follow out that truth that you can do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.